So the fountains of the deep of Genesis 7:11 are probably not fountains of water. That was the old traditional interpretation of that passage. But there's nothing in the text that requires that it be water. It just says fountains of the deep. And the theory before was there had to have been subterranean reservoirs of water that came to the surface to produce the waters of the flood. Tremendous amounts of water. Well, this theory says the fountains of the deep were not water, but the fountains are actually liquid rock or magma. And you have the steam produced and tremendous amount of steams on a global scale, and that remember that mid-Atlantic range extends from North Pole to South Pole. There's a corresponding ring, the ring of fire in the Pacific, and both may have been in force such that God used that in terms of a physical means to produce the phenomenon that, that we have described in Genesis chapter 7. So this is kind of the pre-flood continent, if you will. Uh, we don't see the extent of it. So we have this tremendous amount of steam produced. I also mentioned last time that climatologists will tell you that present atmosphere, at least, does not have the capacity to be able to have the amount of water vapor in it to produce a 40-day, 40-night rain. So you have to have kind of a constant generating of steam, and this kind of a phenomenon would do this, and apparently it lasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So you have a tremendous amount of clouding, and then you have intense global rain for 40 days and 40 nights, along with a lot of tectonic effects. During all of this tectonic effects, you'll have some portions of continents or entire continents with geologists call subducting into the the mantle back in to kind of stabilize continents subducting into the mantle, new continents produced. So everything after the flood is going to be different. And now with this intense global rain and the existing water and shifting of continents, you're going to have tsunamis, you're going to have all kinds of movements where waters are going to be moving across large masses of water. And then all of this material is transported and then redeposited. I'll show you a slide on that later on. So the fountains of the deep, we have a one-year storm in the Bible. All of the mountains are inundated. We saw that last time. Then we have mountain building after the Genesis flood. So we have all of this activity. Continental movements, we've talked about that last time. And even cosmological changes. I didn't give you the verses, but Genesis 8. 22 is one of them, and there's others in the Old Testament. And as I've said, the interpretation of historical geology is that these layers were laid down over long periods of time. Cambrian layer, the thickness of it indicates that it was laid down over 100 million years. These are in millions of years. 100 million years, so you add these up, you end up with billions of years in terms of the age of the layering here. What we are proposing is a different model. And I think I mentioned that there's problems with the geological column. It's all theoretical. It doesn't exist anywhere on the face of the earth in its entirety. Nowhere on the face of the earth. Now, a scholar, Wood Morapi, he's the one that produced... Well, he, he did all the research to pull together all the data of the geological column at all the locations around the Earth, and he put it into program. In his 
study, what he did is he grouped all of these, the, the Cenozoic, all together, and he combined a couple of these. He came up with ten layers, basically. And, and then he ran them through the program that analyzed where they exist on the face of the earth. And nowhere on the face of the earth do all of the layers exist. But when you group them into the ten categories, which means that maybe there was one from this category and maybe the rest of them, well, less than one percent of all of the earth was represented when, from his categories. Okay? The less than one percent are on the map. And in other words, everything in the black, and I think this, I can't remember what does this represent. This is the, this is the complete geological column. The black is the absent. As virtually the whole earth. <laughs> the 1% were the entire complete geological column. Now, when he says complete, he's talking about those 10 categories. He's not talking about the full categories, because it doesn't exist anywhere. Less than 1%. There's a little piece in Cuba. There's a little piece in the Himalayas. A little piece in Poland. There's a little piece over here. There's a little white there in the Andes, and that's it. That's the 1%. So, basically, this is a theoretical chart, is the point I'm making here, and the point he's making. Also, the historical geologist interprets it from an evolutionary viewpoint, saying that what you have represented in the geological column is evolution. And that's not the case, if evolution doesn't exist. 66% of five of the layers or less, you have 66%. So, what I'm saying, basically, is this is a theoretical chart. It, it's missing. Less than 5% is missing. Or here's representing just the Cambrian, and he goes through each of the layers that he's analyzed, just the Cambrian, and notice the Cambrian doesn't exist in a lot of places. Most of Africa, there's no Cambrian. Colorado, which would be right over here, you can see the Cambrian layer, and most of the United States underneath. You, if you dug down, you'd be able to go to a Cambrian layer. Uh, a lot of Australia... Just gives you a feel. So he has all of these charts to kind of give you wood morapi. Wood morapi. And there's a lot of other problems. If we had more time, I'm, I'm trying to hurry through this. A lot of these I mentioned are out of order. I spoke of some of these already when we talked about them, when we talked about fossils. So you can review that. So if they're out of order, then you can see immediately there's some problems. You can go to my website where I have a more detailed explanation, by the way of evidence for the Genesis Flood. And even there it's condensed, but I discussed this. This is kind of a, the fundamental difference between what we believe. In. We, as creationists, look at the same data. We're not inventing data. We're not trying to suppress the data. We're not trying to revise it. We're just We, we want to look at it objectively like any scientist. But, how you begin, or the presuppositions that you begin with, are going to influence how you view that data. In other words, what glasses you wear to see the data. You begin with an evolutionary, let's say presupposition A, viewpoint, or the historical geologist viewpoint. If you make his assumptions, you look at the data, you're going to see it, and what you're going to see in the data is support for the viewpoint that you start with, and you're going to end up with an interpretation that reflects your presupposition. We are going to do the same thing. 
We are going to begin with a different set of presuppositions. We're going to believe in a God, and we're going to believe that God is the creator. It's either true or false. And if he is creator, and if he is also sovereign over nature, and if he produced a Genesis flood in this case, then when we look at data that's related to the Genesis flood, then we are also going to interpret based on our presuppositions, and we're going to end up with the interpretation I'm giving you. But I'm being honest, this is what we do. You have to start from somewhere. The question is, is which set of presuppositions are better to be able to give us the better understanding, the better interpretation? We are actually at an advantage because uh, we have part of the data, we have revelation. We have what the Bible has taught us, which is huge. We have revelation. And that revelation, also, that's data that's just as valid as any data, and that helps us to interpret. So in the geological column, we have this radical break. This is the boundary of the Genesis flood. That's what we're saying. So we are saying everything from the Cambrian up, or from the Precambrian above, was laid down by the Genesis flood in a matter of very short period of time, weeks, not billions of years. And the absence of fossils was because pre... I'm, I'm just trying to grasp. Well, the, there was obviously death before the flood, so the flood would have... We'll talk about fossils. Okay. But what is important is that every geologist acknowledges that there are, there's an absence of fossils of multicellular life below the Cambrian. In fact, they describe the Cambrian as the Cambrian explosion. All of a sudden you have all of these fossils. So is a pre-Cambrian like bedrock? That's bedrock. And I'm going to show you photographs of bedrock, of pre-Cambrian rock. So in flood geology, we have a different flood geology. We explain the arrangement of the layers differently. We explain the arrangement as a result of the Genesis flood. And the arrangement can correspond to the natural habitat of animals. And you find what you would call more mammalian animals towards the top, not because they're more evolved, but because mammals would flee sooner from flood conditions. You have marine animals at the very bottom because they're not fleeing, because they're in water anyway, so they would be covered by sediment and be killed, and you would find those marine animals at the bottom. So we explain the arrangement based on natural habitat. And there are very few humans in the fossil record because with high intelligence, man would escape the flood the furthest. And uh, human fossils, there would not be any fossilization of humans, or very, very little. So most of the people that lived during that time died drowning, basically and their bodies floated to the surface and would have been eaten by the fish that survived and decay. So there's no fossils. There are very few humans. So the arrangement can be explained by natural habitats and the ability to flee the floodwaters. And those that are more resistant to hydrodynamics, uh, you see that tendency as well. So we have a tendency of similar kinds at the same level because they basically inhabit the same habitats and that is persistent in the geological record. So what I'm saying is that geological record is better explained by flood geology than it is by the historical geologists. And there's different kinds at different levels. So it's not an evolutionary arrangement. Is this making sense? I'm building a case trying to demonstrate scientifically that our position 
In other words, our view of the Bible is supported more by science than the secularist has for support for his idea. Okay, here's the categories of evidence. The striking evidence for a worldwide flood. Number one, just the existence of fossils. That alone is evidence. Well, what are fossils? They are the encased remains in rock of creatures that lived at one time and died suddenly. Are fossils formed today? Probably not. Not in abundance. It takes catastrophic circumstance to produce a fossil. Like Mount St. Helens, uh, something very... Something, something huge, yeah. So in general, you are correct, fossils today are generally not formed. And that's true in ancient times as well. So the fossils that were formed, you have to have probably a catastrophic explanation. Two things happen to creatures that die. One, they decay, decompose, don't fossilize. Two, consumed by other creatures, buzzards, wolves, whatever. And secularists admit this. W.M. Miller says, Comparatively few remains of organisms now inhabiting the earth are being deposited under conditions favorable for their preservation as fossils. He's basically saying fossils are not formed today. He goes on, It is nevertheless remarkable that so vast a number of fossils are embedded in the rocks. How can we don't understand it? Because there's no Genesis flood. How can this be? No catastrophic events. How can that be? So, geologists admit this. I mean, they recognize it when they're honest. We don't Lamert's almost all of the fossils by their very manner, and he's not a believer, he's an unbeliever, by their very manner of perfect preservation clearly show a sudden burial. Sudden burial. Just all kinds of multitude of problems for the historical geologist, but are explainable very easily with the Genesis flood. Rapid burial. We have huge, what are called, fossil graveyards. And what a fossil graveyard is more than just fossils. Fossils are everywhere. If you look carefully enough, you can find fossils in up at Sandia Crest. And people have shown me fossils they found up there. So they exist all over the world. And so this is worldwide phenomenon, fossils all over and if fossils only form under catastrophic conditions, then if you can find them all over the world, then that indicates that uh, catastrophic conditions are all over the world. Fossil graveyards are a separate category in that there are special places in different locations all over the earth. In fact, these are worldwide as well, where you have what appears to be an accumulation where in some cases, billions of animals were buried together and fossilized in the same graveyard. And they all died together. So we're talking about a singular event that buried multitudes or thousands or billions of animals together. But they're worldwide. In Siberia, we have the famous mammoths. and But it's not just mammoths. There's all kinds of animals that all died together. And, and a lot of plant life that was preserved as well, that was fossilized. In fact, the plant life is not Siberian plant life, it's tropical plant life, and it's all in Siberia. So how did it get up there, and what 
you know, that supports kind of that canopy idea where there was more of a stable climate throughout the earth before the flood. So all the details support our viewpoint more than it does the historical geologists. Okay, Siberia, Alaska, there is a large fossil graveyard. Germany, the point I'm making here is worldwide. It's not, this is not an unusual situation. We find these all over the world. Argentina, there's some interesting large dinosaur remains there in a graveyard. A well-known one is Wyoming, Utah. These are in the U.S., Colorado. The Wyoming one, that's where Dinosaur National Monument is. It's in Wyoming. And if you can think of a fossil graveyard that contains primarily dinosaurs, you're talking about a huge geological event to bury dinosaurs and preserve all of them together. So Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, California the La Brea pits, and I didn't include New Mexico. We don't have, per se, a fossil graveyard, but we have a lot of dinosaur remains in New Mexico as well. Point being, these occur worldwide. So we have fossil graveyards. Thirdly, we have a special kind of fossils that are unexplained by the evolutionist, secularist, unbelieving world. They're called polystrate fossils. Do you know what polystrate fossils are? Very good. Strata, in other words, layering, poly, many. So you have fossils that go through many layers. That should not happen. Like a single fossil. A single fossil that goes through many layers. Because, see, these layers, it took them millions of years to form, and how could one fossil go through more than one? Here's some examples. And my emphasis, again, is I'm going to show you slides from different places all over the world. These are examples, outstanding examples, of a polystrate fossil in Germany. This one is of a tree trunk. Here's a layer that was measured to be about a meter in thickness. You can see the line there, the line there. There's probably another layer right here, and the trunk is still down here. So here you have a part of a trunk in this layer, this layer, this layer, and you have it above this layer here, and it goes off the photograph. That's a polystrate fossil. If each of these layers took millions of years, several million years, is this tree several million years old? Probably not. What probably happened is these layers were laid down, and this tree was basically covered by these different layers and remained vertical. And that's one of the evidence that we would say favors the flood because you have these different kinds of layers of different material, different gradations. And what they're saying is that whole era of several million years, that's all that was deposited in that layer. And then you have different material layered. Okay, there's one. Here's one in Tennessee. This may be a coal layer. I, I don't know for sure, but certainly a different layer here and the layer above is different. Another tree. Polystrate fossil, it's tree, actual photograph. That's John Baumgartner about 30 years ago when he was still in New Mexico. Photograph, in fact, these photographs he gave me several years ago. And he took this photograph to illustrate polystrate fossils. I don't know where the layering is, but basically this is another one similar. Point I'm making, Kentucky, Tennessee, Germany. I omitted some of the slides. I have a uh, sketch of one from France. I think I eliminated that one, just to give you an idea here. 
most dinosaur fossils are polystrate. Why? Because they're so huge. It's so, so huge. So most dinosaurs are polystrate fossils. So that means that the dinosaur actually was covered by different layers. And the better explanation is the Genesis flood rather than the millions of years of the layering. So you have polystrate fossils. Fourthly, you have just the existence of coal and oil. The standard evolutionary explanation as to how coal is formed is in peat bogs. And that theory basically is no longer valid anymore from what we know. And a better explanation as to the formation of coal, well, first of all, what is coal? What produces coal? It's carbonized something. Well, more specifically, what you said first, carbonized plant life is coal, very clearly. That's why they believe it's peat bog material, stuff that settles in a pond and forms a, eventually coal. The evidence doesn't support that at all. The better explanation for coal is you have basically forests that large waves of water destroyed and transported, deposited the plant life, covered it over with sediment, compressed it, and produced coal. That's the better explanation. Because we have thick coal beds, and all of the data from the coal beds themselves point to this kind of a phenomenon. For example, the layers underneath coal are not root-bearing, which you would expect in a peat bog. In fact, they're not soil-bearing at all. They're, it's usually rock that is not associated with plant life. So just the existence of coal and oil. And what is, if this is coal, what is oil? Animal life. The remains of animal life. And we have huge deposits of oil. How was that produced from an evolution? They, they don't have an explanation. Maybe, maybe there's a better explanation. <laughs> Yeah, and these oil and gas fields were probably produced by the Genesis flood. Here's the conclusion. Oil would have been maybe found in where the valleys used to be. Well, what happened is you have large accumulations of animal life that were also buried and compressed with the right conditions to, rather than fossilize, in this case, compress all the flesh into oily material such as you have oil beds. So you have large quantities of creatures, yeah. Bottom line, here's the conclusion, and this is John Baumgartner's conclusion, the, the guy that I've been referring to. Most coal was formed from plant material transported, what I just described, and buried by marine floodwaters, in other words, ocean floodwaters, rather than from plants which accumulated in a place in swamps or peat box. All the evidence points to this, and it supports a flood geology rather than a peat bog geological, historical geological interpretation. Make sense? So I've given you four lines of argument, evidences from the data itself, Let's take a look next time at sedimentation, and that's the whole process of just layering, and let's look at the layers themselves. And I'm going to give you evidence from the Grand Canyon because you can photograph it and it's easy to see, and all that evidence is real powerful evidence that all of the layers were laid down by the Genesis Flood.
Just to review real quick, just the existence of fossils by themselves argues for a universal flood because fossils are found everywhere on the face of the earth because these geological layers occur not in the sequence that the historical geologist says necessarily, and not all of them, but they occur everywhere. There's geological layers everywhere on the face of the earth. In fact, there's probably not a place where there's not a geological layer, but at least one. And there's fossils in most of those layers. And we said that uh, just the existence of fossils require, because fossils aren't normally formed under typical conditions, require special catastrophic circumstances. So just their existence. Secondly, we said fossil graveyards, and what these are are not only fossils, but they are the accumulation of many fossils or many creatures that all died together, and in these graveyards it appears that they were swept, buried, and obviously fossilized, and then covered up, and you find them in layers, and sometimes multiple layers. Another interesting line of argument are what are called polystrate fossils, which are fossils that go through various layers. And if these layers are millions of years old, it doesn't make sense to see a fossil that uh, would go through more than one layer. You would expect them confined to each of the layers. And there are the existence of these polystrate fossils. In fact, I mentioned most dinosaurs are polystrate fossils because of their very size. And we also mentioned that just the existence of coal and oil, coal being the carbonized remains of plant life, argue for a Genesis flood because of the thickness of many of these layers. Not all of them are that thick, but there's some very thick ones, which indicate that the material was transported. It's even oriented as water would orient plant materials. And it's obviously compressed and formed into the carbonized remains, or we call that coal. Similarly, with oil would be the carbonized remains of uh, animal life, and you have large quantities of deposits that are unexplainable in the secular viewpoint. So just the, those two arguments, there's lots of evidence there. And number five, sedimentation. Let's take a look at it. It's a very powerful line of argument as well. And what we propose, creationists, following scenario, as a result of not only 40 days and 40 nights of rain, but all the tectonic forces and movements of continents. You'd also have disruption of large bodies of water, oceans that existed pre-flood. And all of this would all be in turmoil, such that there would be large quantities of water that would be rushing in different directions, and probably multitude of directions, and probably a lot of mixing, such that in the simplified drawing you have a wave, and some uh, creation have, have estimated that a wave of anywhere from a 1,000 to maybe two or 3,000 feet deep of water, moving at a very rapid rate, and you know what water can do when it moves rapidly, even in local floods. It can move cars, houses, that sort of thing. Well, you would have a large wave, or even like a tsunami, you know what tsunamis do, these would be tsunamis, basically, of deep water, not just 10, 15, 20 feet. It would rip up large quantities of material, and I showed you on the chart, the evidence indicates that it would have ripped up material down to the Precambrian layer, 
which is basically bedrock. It would rip up material, and because it's moving at a rapid rate, it would just churn that material, transport it, that's slide two, however distance until it began to slow down, and once it began to slow down, it would begin, the, the materials would settle out, and usually grade itself out in different layers of different kinds of material, different gradations, depending on all of the hydrodynamic forces that are involved. So you'd have the redepositing of these layers, and you'd have this over a long enough period of time, and at such quantities that it would deposit the entire geological record from the Precambrian to the surface. And in some places, that's about a mile deep. You can measure it fairly easily at the Grand Canyon, and it's about a mile deep at the Grand Canyon. Other places might be deeper, and other places might be shallower. So you have this redepositing of this material that produces these layers, and because of pressures, not only water pressure above, but just the pressures of material above, all of this would solidify, or we call that stratification, stratify into rock very rapidly. wouldn't take long, a matter of weeks, basically. So that's kind of the scenario that we're talking about here. So places like the Grand Canyon, this layer, below this layer, would be the Precambrian, and everything else would have been laid down by the Genesis Flood. Because every layer above that Precambrian layer is what geologists call sedimentary rock. Sedimentary rock, everyone agrees, is either laid down by wind over long periods of time, where you have wind just blowing and depositing material and it just keeps accumulating. And by the way, that's the kind of the conventional historical geology explanation. And they can measure the rates, and based on that rates that they measure today, they project back and say that that layer is 20 million years old. Another scenario, and historical geologists would agree on this, another possible way of deposition would be water action. Depositing material as a result of water action. That's our scenario. And our scenario is that all of the layers would have been laid down by one flood. Not many, many floods, but one. So sedimentary rock is either laid down by wind over slow processes or by water a little bit more rapid. And if it's one flood, it could all be laid down all in one flood. And that's the viewpoint that we're taking. And I think the evidence supports it. So just visually, you can you can go to the Grand Canyon, you can see all of these layers are very different than all the layers bef- below this. If you and in fact, I went to the Grand Canyon, and took these photographs just just for you today. Yeah, just for you. So let's take a look at a little bit of the evidence from the Grand Canyon because it's so vivid and you can see it, and it's easy to kind of describe and easy to to comprehend. And in the Grand Canyon, uh, first of all, before I forget, I want you to notice. This layer here, this lighter colored towards the top there, they call that the bathtub ring of the Grand Canyon because it's kind of like a bathtub ring. I'm going to show you other photographs of it, but you can see it from a distance and you can see where it's located. Again, just to point it out, this is the boundary right here. See the difference in rocks below this? Everything above you see is is what we call stratified. In other words, it's all like this. And then below that, you have rocks that are, you know, granite and that sort of thing. 
And by the way, geologists call that the great unconformity. It's not a creationist description. It's the historical geologist because it is totally different. Great unconformity. So, as much as a mile deep, I've already mentioned that, as much as 18 miles across in some places, that's the Grand Canyon. So this is a huge kind of laboratory that is available to anyone that wants to look at evidence. And it's over 277 miles long, the Grand Canyon. It's very beautiful as well. I mean, it's spectacular. If you ever get a chance to go there, I'd encourage you to go. Uh, in fact, if you can walk down, went down with some friends about four years ago when I took these photographs. You've got to be a little bit in shape, though. Yep. Yeah, it's a seven-mile... Did you go all the way to the bottom? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, one trail is a nine-mile trail down, and there's another one that's seven miles. It's steeper. But it's almost as hard going down as it is coming up. Here's a kind of a sketch or a schematic of the Grand Canyon, and this is just the Grand Canyon right here. So you can see, and it's, it's out of scale, it's not to scale, but if you go into Utah and kind of further north, you can see uh, Zion Canyon, Bryce Canyon, etc. And geologi this is geologist. This is not, you know, creationists didn't put this together. So the, you have all these different layers, and as you can tell from the sketch, they indicate different kinds of material, which makes more sense. In other words, it doesn't make sense that you have 40 million years of this kind of material con continually being deposited, and then all of a sudden you have totally different material on top of it. Where did that material come from? I mean, it just, just doesn't make sense. What makes sense is a flood that gathers large quantities of material deposits like we've described. So anyway, I'm going to show you this. This is the bathtub ring that I was describing, the Coconino formation there with this area. But this gives you kind of a scale. And the words that they use here, they describe what they describe formations, but they correspond to the chart that I showed you where they talk about the different descriptions, okay? For example, this Tapit layer, that's a Cambrian layer. That's a Cambrian layer. So the Precambrian would be below that. So this kind of gives you an idea, and I'm going to show you some more on this Coconino, and I'm going to show you some photographs on the Tapits, a couple of photographs from this Shiner Rump, which is outside the Grand Canyon. But it's similar material. It's laid down under similar types of uh, water action. So here's, real quick, the evidence. And, and this is just kind of the more obvious things that you can visually see. There's a lot of other evidence. If, if you, For example, if you just analyze the material in the layers themselves that geologists do, it shows evidence of water, water action, water laid down. And I, I briefly mentioned, for example, in coal seams, you see, and this is an example of the microstructure, in coal seams, you do see a tendency towards orientation of the material, such that you can see that it all kind of was laid down by water. In other words, the water oriented the, the particles and, and the leaves and that sort of thing, so that they all kind of align in certain directions, depending on the water action. And all of that you can see if you study the microstructure. But what I'm showing here are mainly kind of the big things, the features that are just kind of outstanding and easy to, to identify and photograph. You have what uh, geologists call folding, and by the way, the historical geologist has a very hard time 
explaining these because it doesn't fit their scenario. And what we mean by folding, which you might notice from this photograph, see all of these layers are kind of straight, flat, and then in some places you have these curves, like this one here, where you have this curving here. See that? And if you look at the microstructure, for example, you see that, in other words, if that layer had been laid down and then folded, you'd see a lot of breakage and, and uh, cracking. And all of the evidence points to that when this was bent this way, it was bent when it was still wet. In other words, it was still plastic, because it doesn't show the evidence of the cracking that you would experience if the otherwise. So this is kind of an example. Here's a better example where you have, in fact, the color kind of brings it out. Here you have a layer that kind of drops and dips like this and goes back up. And then you have corresponding layers underneath it. See what I'm saying here? And again, if you analyze the material itself, uh, the conclusion you have to come to is that it was folded in still a plastic or a flexible state. And these aren't unusual. I mean, you can see these all over. It was just real easy to photograph some of these. In the scenario that we described, with a lot of movement, a lot of tectonic action, in between a lot of the things going on with the Genesis Flood, you would expect in different places the, the material that was laid down to afterwards then be folded in, in manners like this. So here's, a, here's an example of folding. There's also examples of what geologists call cross-bedding. This is more internal material. And you can't quite see it as easily, but if you look at this, see the slant on that material? That shows evidence of cross-bedding. You get the same action from wind, this cross-bedding action. But, interestingly, in this sandstone, the angle is more in line with a water cross-bedding, because it gives a different angle of accumulation than wind. And all the evidence points that this cross-bedding is done by water action. In other words, it's all underwater. And that's John Baumgartner again, several years ago. Why would you not? Why would you expect? What is the what is the process by which that happens that we expect it? Well, you'd expect under pressures of water and accumulation, displacements of different materials. Yeah, and you'd have uh, tectonic movements. You might have one movement going in one direction, another one in another direction. So, And you'd expect all of that with the things that we've described concerning the flood model that we're looking at. And, by the way, this is John Baumgartner is the one that came up with this flood model that I'm describing to you. He used to live here. in So cross-bedding, there are what are called amphitheaters, which also is evidence. And, and the interesting thing about these amphitheaters, in fact, when you go over there, they have different names for them. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Have you, have you seen all this stuff? Have you seen the amphitheaters? If you look at it from the top down, you have kind of the edge of the Grand Canyon, and then you have something like that every once in a while, and you might have another one like that. That's the amphitheater. This is kind of looking down from, from the sky. And if you think of our flood model, if you see water that's moving 
And you can see this in the riverbed. It's not unusual to find these eddies that just take small quantities of material. But in this case, you're looking at big quantities of material. The interesting thing about these amphitheaters, geologists look at them and they realize, and you can see if you just look, here's, here's an amphitheater here. At the bottom, if you had a slow process of erosion, where this material was eroded slowly, you would expect the material nearby, and in all these amphitheaters, the material is gone, which indicates that the water just swept it away. So there's no material at the bottom there uh, to speak of. Does that apply also to places like up in Utah? Yes. Canyons? Some of the badlands up there, yes. Yeah. Grand Canyon is not the only place you find all this phenomena, but it's so vivid and, and it's spectacular there. So you have folding, you have cross-bedding, you have amphitheaters, you have these sharp boundaries, which is interesting. If you have millions of years, and then all of a sudden you have this sharp, very different material, what happened between these two long periods of time? Yet you have a sharp boundary. In fact, if it was deposited slowly, you would expect erosion, not sharp boundaries. You'd have little gullies and little irregularities throughout. And here's kind of a vivid example. This is that Coconino sandstone, and that's about, uh, I don't know, 80 to 100 feet thick. That's the bathtub ring. Here's the top of the Grand Canyon there. But I'm going to show you right there the, the difference. You can see it very vividly. See, the material even looks different, but the color is drastically different. And this is a very, very sharp boundary between the two. Uh, it's, in fact, it's right on the main trail going down. If you go down the what's called the Bright Angel Trail, you can see it. And here's another location of it, but here's the boundary. So what you have below is what's called Hermit Shale, and you have Coconino uh, sandstone above it, and if you would remove this material, you'd see that boundary. That boundary was just go, and it goes through the whole Grand Canyon, and it's a sharp boundary, which you would not expect if you have long periods of time. There's a closer look at it. Coconino sandstone above. See how sharp that is? That's the point. And see how different this material is? You don't expect this sharp, drastic change. So you can see that the whole extent of the, the Grand Canyon. So you have amphitheaters, you have sharp boundaries, you have the great unconformity that I told you about. That's this layer at the bottom of the what's called the Tapetes layer, which would be the Cambrian layer. So the boundary between the Tapetes and the Precambrian is called the Great Unconformity because it's so different. And I pointed it out already, but here's some arrows to kind of show you what it looks like. So over here, you just trace it all along. That's the great unconformity. Here it is closer up, and you can immediately see. See how different? This is basement rock. Granites, schists, and everything above is what is called sedimentary rock. It's all this layered rock that was laid down probably by water. In fact, we're saying that it is. And all of these layers above, some of them are eroded, and you can't see them as easily, but they're all they're all sedimentary rock all the way not only to the top, but if you go further north, you see more sedimentary rock outside of the Grand Canyon as well. So you have basement rock, granites, schists, and then above you have sedimentary different kinds. You have limestones, you have sandstones, you have shale. And the boundary between geologists call the Great Unconformity. Another shot, you can see the difference, see the basement rock. In fact, these almost look 
if there's any orientation, it's more vertical than it is horizontal, whereas these are clearly layered. And that's typical of the whole great unconformity. In fact, in that tapete layer, in some places, you can find boulders bigger than this room that were moved by water. It takes a lot of water and moving quite briskly. That tapete sandstone, which would be that Cambrian layer, if you dig down in the United States, obviously the Grand Canyon is right here, so that layer extends through most of the United States. And I got this from a geology website, not, you know, this is not all Christian stuff, this is geology. Linda? Well, what made it a canyon? Kansas layers like that? Yes, yes. That's like a cake, well, the scenario that we have, and I, I'm not going to have time to show you, but in the longer thing, I show you how the canyon was formed. Let me real quickly, real quickly, the layers were laid down during and shortly after the Genesis flood as waters were receding and slowing down. The, all of the layers were laid down. There's evidence in uh, Colorado, Utah, and those states in there of an ancient... It, today it's dried up, but an ancient lake. And our theory suggests that something, with all of these tectonic shiftings and move, movements and earthquakes and things, shortly after the flood, this huge lake, uh, whatever was holding that water back, released it, and that water came and ran and carved out in a matter of short, you know, days, the Grand Canyon. The standard theory is these layers were laid down over millions of years, and then the canyon was carved out afterwards many, many other millions of years after it, making the earth billions of years old, obviously. And we're saying that it all is associated with Genesis flood. But anyway, this gives you a feel for how large these layers are and how far they extend. Okay, that's sedimentation. And there's a lot more I could mention, but I wanted to just give you a real quick overview of it. There's also interesting evidence from catastrophes that have been observed, and some of them that are more recent that have not been observed, that give us evidence of a universal flood, because they give you a kind of a snapshot of what can happen under catastrophic conditions. And the main one, and the only one I have time to give you, is the one related to this mountain. You know what mountain that is? That's Mount St. Helens. What I want you to notice is the elevation here. 9677. Jot that down. This is a before photograph of Mount St. Helens. And how many of you remember this is before you little girls were born? Um, 1979. No, 80. 1980. Let's take a look at evidence that Mount St. Helens produced that give us kind of a possible scenario for a large-scale flood-type phenomenon. This is May 17th. This is the day before 1980 here. The mountain, that same mountain, this mountain, showed a bulge. This is a bulge, and scientists knew something was going to happen, and it was highly studied. This is close to a very populated area, so a lot of hiking trails, very familiar to a lot of people, particularly geologists. They know much about that whole area. And it's been very heavily studied since. So we know, and we kind of documented what happened. We know. I mean, th these are not things that creationists have made up. Well, the next day, May 18th, the mountain basically exploded. 
releasing energy that has been estimated at about one atomic bomb per second over the entire eruption, the equivalent of about 30,000 total atomic bombs exploding. There's a before from a lake that is up high in elevation, very near the foot of the mountain. That's what it looks like before, and that's what it looks like from the same location afterwards. Quite dramatic. There's another shot of the crater. It's about a mile across, which is not large, by the way, in terms of other craters and other volcanic places on the face of the Earth. 200 million cubic yards were displaced. 250 square miles were damaged. It's a like a moonscape or a Martian landscape after the explosion. Here's the new elevation, 8364. What was the old one? 9677. Who does the math there? How much of the mountain was... Yeah. Yeah, lots of the mountain's gone. This is that spirit lake that I described from basically the, the crater here. There's Mount Rainier in the background. And this is shortly after. So all of this is debris. This is mainly plant debris in there. And by the way, a lot of studies have been made there. And it's possible I heard they were investigating whether coal was formed as a result of some of the action here. I haven't heard the results of that. An aerial shot here. The blast destroyed like a 10-mile area, or at least this area, 10-mile scale there. That's the crater. This is a mile right there. That's Spirit Lake. This is a sketch of what happened. We have the eruption of the mountain, and we have what's called pyroclastic flow. This is lava, debris, mud, everything that came, melted snow, that sort of thing, comes out of the volcano. And then you have other d debris that goes down this North Fork Toodle River. And what it did is it deposited in layers material. And I'll show you photographs of it. And some of that came to the edge of Spirit Lake here. And an interesting phenomenon came about later. So you have all this mud, and that's the brown there, mud deposits, debris. This is avalanche material, ice, whatever's in the way. This is the destruction of plant life, mainly trees and that sort of thing. So that's that 10-mile distance that I showed you there, that scale. Just to compare it to the Valle Caldera here, right outside of north of here, near Los Alamos, it's got a 14-mile crater. So it's bigger than uh, Mount St. Helens. Yeah, it's prehistoric. We don't have a record of it. Well, this these are the features. This is what took place as a result of what geologists were able to look at and study, and th these are not contested. There was a formation, obviously a lot of erosion, very rapid. Sedimentation, in other words, laying down of material, very rapid, in a matter of hours, actually. Stratification, in other words, not just soft material, but material that was hardened into rock and made into rock layers, very rapidly. Here's an example. Uh, this is 518 and 80. This is the material that fell on the day of the explosion. This material down here, the bottom, you can't even see on the photograph. That's the, That's the material that was thrown up into the air and then just came down and fell. That's the nice. airfall debris. And then in June, this is a month, over a, about a month later, in five hours, as a result of more eruptions, 
this material was deposited, and it's, it's layered, and it's rock. In other words, if you came and looked at this, not knowing what had happened there, you might think, oh, okay, we have 25 feet, how many millions of years of that have taken the deposit? It's not much different than what you find at Grand Canyon. And then 319, we have this top material, which is not as condensed as this lower material. So we have this layering is the point I'm making here. And these are smaller micro layers in this area here. So you have rapid formation, uh, erosion, sedimentation, stratification, log deposits in Spirit Lake, coal possibly, I mentioned that. And in Spirit Lake you have these layers deposited and you have these trees that were displaced some of them, because of the bottoms being larger and the water soaking them, they make them heavier so they stand up. And you have the possibility of trees that go through many layers, possible formation of polystrate fossils. See that? All of this was produced short time. And then a canyon was formed a year or so later. I showed you that sketch of that North Fork Toodle River. All of this material was laid down as a result of the erosion of those initial eruptions. Mud, debris, rocks, ice, all of that laid down. The average thickness is about 150 feet. In one place they measured at least 600 feet thickness of material. And in some cases many layers and other layers or other areas not so many layers. And then, March 19th, two years later, 1982, something happened in Spirit Lake, earthquakes or something, released a lot of the water from Spirit Lake, and it went down that Toodle Valley and carved out a 140th scale Grand Canyon. And the photograph that I showed you is from the side of that canyon. And if you had not known what had happened, you might conclude, well, it took many thousands at least, maybe millions of years to carve that canyon. It happened in a day. So that's the same photograph. That's the same locations. No canyon. Day later, canyon. And I showed you that scale. This is several hundred feet here deep. So that's Mount St. Helens, March 19. So this is just a pimple on the face of the earth to illustrate what catastrophic conditions can produce on a small scale, if you magnify that as described in the Genesis account, then we're talking about similar things can happen on a large scale worldwide. And this evidence is kind of powerful evidence. And actually, Mount St. Helens and the research that's been done there has changed the minds of a lot of secular geologists to be far more open to catastrophic formation of a lot of uh, phenomenon in the area of their their study, uh, geology. I'm not saying they're becoming believers, but they're recognizing that uh, catastrophic conditions explain a lot of the phenomenon far better than the long-age, long-era theories that uh, they've been trained in. So that's the evidence for a worldwide Genesis flood. Summary here, we have massive sediment, we have uh, continuous coarse sediment of materials, just like you have in the Grand Canyon, water transplanted plant debris, 
Same phenomenon as you might expect from a Genesis flood. Widespread animal burial and probably fossilization. And over, and there's the key, over a short time frame. Short scale. And it's been measured. Measured in days sometimes. Not millions of years. Not even years. Short periods of time. There's also, real quick, evidence from history and culture. And I'm going to talk some more about this later. So, just real quickly, there's at least 150 flood traditions around the world, which means that humanity in all of these cultures have a memory from ancient ancestors that something unusual happened in history. And there's at least 150. In fact, I've read in other accounts, uh, somebody counted 270, I think, flood traditions. And here's one example of Sumerian tablet that deals with a creation flood type story. And there's a Babylonian Gilgamesh epic that describes a worldwide flood, Babylonian flood story. So there's evidence from just history and culture as well. So there's your evidence for a universal flood, scientific evidence. And we can conclude that our sovereign God, who is sovereign of all history, is worthy of worship. Marcy, why don't you have prayed for us yet? Heavenly Father, we are once again in awe of you. And so thankful that uh, you are so big and just hold everything together for your purpose, for your will, for your glory. Thank you for revelation that you are providing for each of us through this class and through your word on any basis. And I just pray for continuing revelation and we would be open to hear uh, what it is that you're speaking to us, that our hearts would be open, that the eyes of our hearts would be open, that our, our ears would be open, and that we would soak in each and every word that you speak to us. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Uh, I thank you that he is an ever-present source of revelation for us. I thank you for Ray and his efforts that he puts in through all of his study and his willingness to spend his time with us to help us to understand you. Um, I pray for his health and for your will above all, and I just thank you that you are control in every aspect of our lives, and I thank you most of all for the sacrifice of your son Jesus in a sense. Amen.